What's up, guys? Max here with another brand new episode of the Scuttlebutt Show. Thanks for bearing with me through the long weekend. It was my wife's birthday, and we had a fantastic weekend, and we weren't here yesterday out here in Okinawa. It's Tuesday now, so yesterday was the holiday uh, observing out here, so we had a nice day hanging out um, here on the island. Welcome. So like I said, uh, it's another new episode, so we have a bunch of stories to cover. I want to address right away in the uh, headline, the title of the video, it should say National Guard Hero, National Guard Hero, not Nation Guard Hero. I don't even know what that means, but we do have a bunch of cool stories today. We've got the National Guard Hero. We've got something from Mortal Kombat, which I don't think anybody here was expecting. Um, a little update on a story I covered a while ago about a new movie coming out. What's up to everybody in the chat? What's up, Earl? What's up, Justin? Welcome to the show, guys. Um, we've got the oldest Marine recently passed away, and we're going to cover that. We've got uh, uh, the Navy's name in a new ship after a Korean War hero. When, when I saw this story, I was like, the audience has, my viewers have to know this story. The world has to know this story. So we're going to cover the story of how a, a Navy ship's getting its name and more. And we've got more. So let me know. We've got some new stuff going on today. Let me know what you guys think about it. Carlos, what's up? Blue Line, what's up? How's everybody doing? I hope you're doing well. Really quick, right off the bat, update you guys on something from a, a while back, maybe like a month ago. We watched on this show the trailer for the movie Outside the Wire, a brand new Netflix movie, which is out now. You can watch it now. Oh my God, it is really bad. I, you know, and I'm and I'm an easy critic to please. Like when I watch a movie, it's really challenging to get me to watch a movie that I don't like. This movie is very bad, very bad. Uh, as you might have seen, it stars Anthony Mackie, who was the Falcon uh, in the Marvel Avengers franchise, and they go out of their way. I mean, spoiler alert here a little bit, but just don't even watch the movie. They go out of their way to make some Avengers references that I think they think are supposed to be funny, but are just horrible in every possible way. In the movie, the, the secondary character, the sidekick, is a drone pilot. He's a predator pilot, which I was like, hell yeah, let's go. Drone pilots, you know, I'm a, I was a drone pilot. This is going to be cool. Oh, uh, it was so, everything about it, the military, um, you know, consultant that they had, that they must have had, totally clueless. Everything was wrong. Everything was bad. Everything was unwatchable. I made it about halfway through and turned it off. I'm going to try to finish it and post a, a, a review, a full review, but just heads up, that movie is bad, really bad. Um, other than that, I figure let's get right into what we're talking about today. We have some cool stories. We have a video we're going to watch, but let's get right into the first story, which is Mortal Kombat. If you guys remember Mortal Kombat, the super great, very awesome video game from, I believe, the 90s when the very first one came out and just changed the game as far as what video games can do. I mean, we're talking realistic, well, at in 1993, realistic blood and guts and gore and violence and karate kicking. You know, I did karate when I was, you know, up until around the third grade, but they did say I was kicking at an eighth grade level. So that was pretty cool. Now the Mortal Kombat franchise has been around for a long time, but there's been one thing that has been debated, unknown, under described in the franchise, which is what's up with Jax? So Mortal Kombat is getting a reboot and so is metal armed special forces soldier Jax. Look at, this is the new Jax right here. He's got his cyborg arms. It looks like, who do you guys think he's fighting right here? Is this Goro? Is this uh, Shang Tsung? Who is this bad guy right here with the with the uh, the the hammer wrapped in chains? That looks like, is that, who is the bad guy in, uh, in with the, with the 
mask with the skeleton mask. You guys remember what that guy's name was? Not Shang Tsung, but from like Mortal Kombat 2. It looks like this is the bad guy here. That's what I'm thinking. So that's right. The wildly popular fighting game of your youth is once again heading back to the big screen. And the fatality heavy film is bringing the metal armed special forces soldier Jax with it. So... Mortal Kombat's coming back to the big screen. It's going to be on HBO Max in April of this year. I'm sure they probably have already finished filming it. There's some teaser footage out there online. I'm super excited. I've been looking for a, a good Mortal Kombat movie for a long time. I remember the very first Mortal Kombat movie. I didn't think it was that bad, to be totally honest with you. But they do clear up one thing here, which is Jax's service was Army Special Forces. Okay, so if you're wondering, what is Jax? Is he a bosun's mate? Is he a senior airman? What is this guy with the metal arms? No, he is Special Forces... Uh, I'm guessing they mean Green Beret, Army Special Forces. I'm sure he's probably, uh, he's got to be um, um, Delta Force probably. So uh, it says, Makad Brooks will play Major Jackson Jax Briggs, a recurring character who first appeared in the 1993's Mortal Kombat 2. Over the years and in installments, Jax's backstory has been vague like most of the characters, though his military service has been a constant. He's always been represented as a soldier. Even so, he's gone through some changes like not having metal arms to wearing a red beret, but the consensus has been that he's current or former special forces. That said, this is Mortal Kombat, a game where people shoot lightning and chains from their hands, rip out spines, and who, for several iterations, never used the weapons they had on their person and instead just punch, kicked, and need each other to death. That's a good point. So we will see what's going on with him. Maybe we'll get a backstory as to why he got, uh, oops, why he got metal arms and why he got uh, all this, all this special uh, abilities that he got and why the army decided to do that to him. But um, time, time will tell. So that's the first story today. I thought it'd be fun to get that one going. Rachel, what's up? How are you doing? I hope you're well. Justin at Earl. Oh yeah. So Earl, Earl says uh, in the chat, I've started, I've decided to start wearing boots to PT with my recruiter. Earl, what's up with the boots? Are you, uh, are you, you're training for boot camp, I presume. Um, but what kind of boots are you wearing? What, uh, what is the intention with the boots? Are you trying to get ready for some long runs, some long rucks? What's the deal there? Um, I hope everyone's having a great, you know, Monday. I hope, you know, you guys are getting to observe Martin Luther King Day uh, in a way that's meaningful to you. And I appreciate you tuning into my show here while, uh, while you have the day off. There, there was, um, there was a bunch of stories, you know, I didn't know, I didn't know where to go with this week. Like there were some things that happened over the weekend and, you know, we've been kind of, um, talking about the Capitol a lot. And I, I thought maybe we would, you know, steer back to some of the more traditional scuttlebutt show type topics this week. I do have one story about the Capitol coming up here on, on our next story. And we're going to watch a fun little video, but, um, I did want to call attention to, uh, to this next story here. Cause it is out of the army, but it is also, relating to veteran suicide. And so I wanted, to, I wanted to bring this one up here. Now, obviously, the Army's had a lot of stories recently about death. We've covered a lot of it on the show. Murderers, missing people. I mean, there's, they could have a whole season of unsolved mysteries based off of 2020 in the Army. But I want to uh, talk about this one here, not because necessarily of just this guy, which, you know, we are going to talk about him and, and, uh, and what happened and it's tragic, but because of where this article kind of goes, as I was reading it, I wanted to kind of get into this. So, the Army identifies infantrymen found dead at Fort Bliss. So Fort Bliss, the Army has identified Staff Sergeant John Bailey as the soldier found dead at Fort Bliss last week. Bailey, 27-year-old indirect fire infantryman from Haiku, Hawaii. Indirect fire means he would be like a mortarman, so he's launching mortars. Mortars tend to be what they call indirect fire because you're not firing them directly at the enemy like as if you were looking down the barrel of a gun. You're lobbing them in. You're kind of shooting them where you think the enemy might be. And usually these weapons will have some kind of like effective radius, a blast radius, something like that. Um, Bailey, it was, uh, 
pronounced dead by emergency service personnel on his on post residence on January 14th, Army officials said. While the circumstances surrounding his death are under investigation, his father, Matt da- Bailey, said his son died by suicide. <clears throat> Johnny's demons overcame him and they became too much for him to bear and he took his own life. Bailey wrote on his, his father wrote on his Facebook page, according to uh, Island News, reach out to your loved ones, military or not, let them know that they don't have to carry their burdens alone. If in the military, tell them that it's not a weakness to ask for help. And you know, we've talked about this on the show before. I think asking for help in the military is a strong thing to do. I think it's a sign of strength. It, it's it's the best, if you want to, if you want to get back into the fight, but you're struggling with mental health stuff, the only way to get back into the fight is to address those mental health things. And we've also covered stories on this show where chain of command has punished people for seeking mental health. And so it's really a bad situation to be in. If you're, if you're a veteran and you feel locked in, you feel like you're going to suffer retaliation from your chain of command if you do ask for help. But I encourage you from my own personal experience to go seek help for, you know, anxiety, PTSD, depression, whatever's going on. If you're struggling psychologically, you won't be a good, effective member of the military. And, you know, when you're in the military, having a good mindset, a good, healthy place mentally is going to not only make you a more effective soldier, but it's going to obviously have massive impacts on your personal life and hopefully prevent things from ever getting to the point where you ever have to even consider taking your own life. And I hope that that is never the case for anyone here. John's friends and family have been shattered by his death, Bailey added. Nothing will ever make that pain go away, but if by talking about it, we can prevent even one unnecessary death, it might be lessened in a bit. I believe that too. You know, talk about it. I believe in talking about it, having the conversation. Staff Sergeant Bailey joined the Army in January 2013. So let's think about that really quick. He has only been in the, he had only been in the Army for eight years and he's a Staff Sergeant. So here's a guy who was doing extremely well. Here's a guy who's doing well. His career by just his rank and time in the army is he's excelling. He's ahead of the curve. Eight years, already a staff. So he's bare, like barely eight years. That would have been this month would have been eight years in the army. And he was a staff sergeant. That's extremely good as far as rate of promotion goes. So he arrived in March 2019 to Fort Bliss, which was his third duty station. He was the fire direction chief for headquarters and headquarters company, 4th Battalion, 70th Armored Regiment, 1st Armored Brigade Combat Team. By the way, just a totally side note, the Army structure of how they, and the Marine Corps of how they like structure their units is so complex to me. I really don't, I need that broken down to me, you know, Barney style. If somebody wants to do that, who's really, you know, knowledgeable on it, I'd love to know. We are deeply saddened about the loss of such a bright and talented NCO, said Captain Christopher Italiano, Bailey's company commander. Staff Sergeant Bailey was, above all else, a genuine and incredibly caring person. He was a member of our family. His kindness and compassion toward his fellow soldiers extended well beyond the scope of his daily duties as a mortar platoon sergeant. He had four Army Achievement Medals and two Army Good Conduct Medals. Now, the story does go on to say, by the way, what's up to everybody in the chat? Earl says, I bought some tactical boots from... Free soldier, I wanted to start with something cheap as an experiment. That's good. It is good to break in some boots and get used to wear them. Cadet, hey, Scuttlebutt, just came to say hi. Thank you for stopping by, Cadet. Welcome, and uh, I hope you're having a great week. So um, this where the article goes from here is, you know, why I thought it was so important to bring this up because in the recent episodes, we've covered veterans having retaliation for seeking mental health while they're in the military and you know, that just sickens me. And, and I hope that whoever is out there in the chain of command who might hear this video, who might hear the context that these stories are being covered in, 
could identify something like that about to happen in their own chain of command and could prevent it and take good care of their troops so that these types of things don't have to happen. But look look at the, these statistics from Task and Purpose here. The military has seen a sharp increase in suicide deaths among service members since the novel coronavirus pandemic began in the spring of 2020. Last year, the Army reported a 30% increase in suicide deaths among active duty soldiers and a 41% increase in Army Reserve. 30% and 41%. That is a huge jump. That's massive. Those are really, really, really remarkable numbers to have increases in suicide deaths this past year. And that's only in the last nine months. So what is going on in the last nine months or so that has caused this major spike? So it says, in the face of additional stress of a pandemic, we are working to improve access to behavioral health care while enhancing our resilience training and stigma reduction efforts. I guess you could interpret this as there was not enough access to behavioral health care and not enough focus on resiliency and reduction of stigma. Obviously, from stories we covered on the show, that seems quite true. And in my experience in the military, I have to say I had both. You know, I, I, I experienced both. There were times when I felt like people were really supportive of taking care of mental health. Like when I was in Naval Special Warfare, if somebody was struggling, they took really good care of those people. It's funny because they took really good care of people who were struggling with mental health in, special, in, in naval special warfare compared to conventional forces. I feel like maybe, you know, there's this uh, sense that if you're not, you know, necessarily tip of the spear on the front lines, then what do you have to complain about? You know, like if you're an a aircraft maintainer, if you're deployed on a ship, actually, let me switch my camera really quick. I'm just going address to address you guys straight on. If you're like on a ship, if you're like a maintainer, if you are a, let's say you're in the army and you're an administrative clerk, something like that. Um, if you're not the infantry, if you're not just coming back from deployment and you go and you say, hey, I'm having a really hard time. I'm, I'm struggling because this thing's going on in my life. I'm getting divorced. I have health issues. My mother, my father passed. There seems to be this like, I, I've seen this in my own experience, this what do you have to complain about? You just sit behind a desk. You don't even have a hard job. You don't even have a hard job. What could you possibly be going? Like, suck it up. There's people out there, you know, deployed to Syria right now, deployed to Iraq right now, deployed to Afghanistan right now. What do you have to complain about? And we really brush people aside based off of that. And we just go, ah, they're being a crybaby, they're being a wimp. And then people who are, you know, maybe alternatively, like, you know, SEALs, Special Forces, Infantry, they come back and it's like, oh, you guys must, you guys must be struggling. You guys must have PTSD, especially from the civilian side, right? Oh, you guys must be having, a, you know, how do you deal with all that trauma and everything like that? And there's definitely a major gap in between how we treat, like inner service, inter, inner service, a gap in how we treat people. We just assume that if somebody can't handle being on a ship, then they're like a crybaby wuss or something like that. And then if somebody's out in the front lines, we're like, oh, we gotta, you know, really focus on this because they're 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 struggling. They've been through they've been through the shit, you know, but. The fact is, if you look, but if you look at it a little bit deeper, the people who are most forward because they're getting that attention, they're the most taken care of. They're having a really good chance of access to care, especially you know special forces. Really high likelihood that they're having access to care, mandatory training, mandatory psych evaluations, mandatory sit downs with a, a therapist. Like in NSW, we had mandatory, mandatory. Like you had to sit down with a therapist at least for them to ask you if you're doing okay, then you can say, yes, I'm doing fine. They, you know, basically let you go 15 minute meeting or whatever, but you had to do it post deployment. And I'm, and in conventional Navy, there was never anything like that. 
So if somebody was having a hard time with whatever it is, you don't know what it is. You don't know what's going on in their life. The military can make you feel isolated. So if you're having a totally non-military related crisis, mental health crisis, family crisis, emotional crisis, the military can enhance that by that feeling of isolation because you're on the ship, you're in the barracks, you're on TAD, TDY. So I think it's important that we pay attention to all of the veterans, all of the troops. If they say that they're having a mental health crisis, we cannot be out there punishing them. We have to make sure that they have access to healthcare. We have to make sure that they know that they have access to healthcare because there's like all this crazy levels of not knowing things like not knowing that you have eligibility for VA healthcare for five years after you get out of the military, if you've deployed to a combat zone one year, I think no matter what, one or two years, no matter what, just by being a veteran, stuff like that. Things that people don't know that could save or change their lives. So what I'm trying to do here with this story is to just spread information, spread awareness, and hopefully the right person maybe will hear this, see this, share this information, share these topics with people, have the conversation, maybe help somebody out. Now, uh, before we move on to the next article, additionally at Fort Bliss this year, and this is an ongoing investigation, private Asia Graham, 19-year-old human resources specialist, was found dead on New Year's Eve. Her death remains under investigation, though I did see they did not suspect foul play, but it is curious. And additionally, there was another story out of, I think, Texas, Fort Hood maybe, uh, where that staff sergeant drill instructor was found shot dead in her car on early hours of January 1st. And if the army's currently offering $25,000, if anybody has any information on what happened to them. So that's interesting. Um, now here we go. This is a, on to a positive note, on to a positive note. Okay. Let's go to a positive story. If you guys have any questions in the chat or anything, a comment, concern, question, whatever, go ahead and drop it. As always, just as a reminder, the best ways to support the channel right now are to share the videos, invite people to the chat. And if you want to support the channel in a, in a more tangible way, you can head to Patreon, link in the description down below. You can come join us on Discord where we have a great conversation going and some awesome memes. Uh, and if you guys have any questions or anything like that, merch is available at scuttlebuttshow.com. If you guys have any questions or anything like that, you can hit me up at the Scuttlebutt Show on all the social medias or the Show at gmail.com. And I look forward to talking to you there. So this next story is a, a positive one. We have a really positive story here. So teacher called to protect the Capitol holds class from Humvee. Now, this is Sergeant Jacob Koha. He's 34 years old. He's a District of Columbia National Guard member, and he's a music teacher in Fairfax County. And if you look up his name on YouTube, you'll find his YouTube channel where he's playing instruments with his band. Uh, and it's he's got like 60 subscribers. Maybe we can get him a few subscribers today. Tell him you came over from the Scuttlebutt Show. Um, he is a member of the National Guard. And what I have here for you guys is a, a video, a video from the local Fox News affiliate about this, and I wanted to play this for you guys. So let's sit back and uh, react to this video. Back here in Washington, the downtown area is locked down. National Guard troops at street corners all around the mall, the White House, and the Capitol. Many of those citizen soldiers have a story to tell. Fox 5's Bob Barnard introduces us to one of them. When he's not standing guard protecting our nation's capital from a potential armed threat from domestic terrorists, D.C. Army National Guardsman Jake Kohut is playing the saxophone in the 257th Army Band, sharing their nifty work on YouTube. But it's what Kohut does in the civilian world that is winning Jake praise this week. You see, he's a music teacher holding down the fort and teaching classes from the... Really quick, if you've ever been in a Humvee 
it is not the most friendly place to be doing anything. First of all, everything's made out of steel, okay? Like literally everything is made out of steel with sharp edges. So you move around in any direction a little bit and you're banging your leg, you're banging your shoulder, you're banging your head. Um, I'm surprised he's he's chilling in there playing the flute without a helmet on because he's probably bashing his head, but you see his helmet's right there to his left side. It is, the temperature is always going to be either extremely hot or extremely cold somehow. I don't know how that works, but it's just a fact of the matter. And he's got his speaker up here on top of a notebook, which is probably likely sitting on top of a radio. Just the fact that he's going through the trouble of sitting in this Humvee, which sucks. And it, and I'll, I will tell you too, there is no way there's good acoustics in there. I will say that. Um, and he's going on here, going on Zoom or whatever he's on, which I don't know how he's getting internet service in there. I'll tell you that. But anyway, he's, uh, he's in there. He's got his mask on, which is like probably because the cameraman's in there with him. He's got his headphones on, shades on top of his head, which they should not be there. It's a uniform infraction. And I'm going to have to head out there and correct him on that. But He's got everything else going on. He's sitting in there in this Humvee. This is the main thing I want to focus on here. He's sitting here in his Humvee, which is not, not conducive to a learning environment, not a comfortable place, and he's going through the trouble to make this happen for his students, which I think is really, really, really notable and uh, and good for him. Back seat of his Humvee. It was just really important for me to try to be able to get to as many classes as I could if my shifts allowed for it. So it's been really cool. Um, I mean, I had to coordinate some stuff, but, you know, the team leaders here and then my principals uh, back at school have been working to make this work, you know. Dr. Kowat is getting showered with love and songs from the students and staff at Canterbury Woods Elementary School in... I love a good GIF. Like, the right GIF at the right time, it should, it's not a GIF. It's a gift. It's a gift. It just makes you feel so good. Hits you just in the feels, you know what I mean? You're like, yes. That's the right gif at the right time. And I love that. Good gif. Good gif usage. Annandale. Zoe Bishop is one of Dr. Kohut's students. I got a vibe that um, he was happy and he was in a good place and he liked where he was. That's, that gives you comfort then, right? Mm-hmm. The school sharing Dr. Kohut's story on Twitter for the whole world to see. He's sacrificing for our country. He's, you know, a very short notice, obviously, was asked to, to do this. And he has a family and he has his, his job that he does on a regular basis. And so we're all just so proud that he's um, serving our country, helping to protect our capital, helping to make sure that, you know, we can have a peaceful transfer of power and that we can do what we do in this country every day. Dr. Kohut is one of about 15,000 National Guardsmen in Washington this week for the inauguration next week. They are citizen soldiers, and he's getting a lot of love on social media. The school tweeting, this is what a hero looks like. Matt Kralovec writing, as a U.S. Marine, I am humbled watching these citizen soldiers step into the breach to defend our democracy. For Jake Kohut, being of a musical mind helps ease the stress of this job. There's never not a, a, a piece of music in my head. There's never not a piece of music. The question is which piece of music and uh, how does that relate to the situation? So, you know, um, for me this week, it's been uh, Puccini's opera, Soir Angelica. It's a very powerful opera. And there's something about um, allowing yourself to kind of, to become vulnerable to the emotions in the music 
that helps put perspective on what you're actually feeling in real life, if that makes sense, you know? Sounds good to us, Dr. Kohut. Thanks for all the work you're doing. In the district, Bob Barnard, Fox 5 Local News. All right, so big shout out to Dr. Jacob Kohut. I don't know what he's a doctor of. I assume PhD of something, but um, I just wanted to share that story because not only is, by the way, Scotty in the chat, what's up? I, I want to share that story because not only is it a nice story and good for him and he's going out there way, way out of his way to, you know, be a good National Guardsman, be a good soldier. He's called on to go out there. But there's a few other things, too, that I want. There's a few things I want to unpack about this story. If you guys bear with me for just a second. First, doctor. They, they call him a doctor. Like I said, I assume PhD. I assume he's a PhD of music or something like that. That's a, having that education in music is a big part of becoming a military band member. So like the Navy band, the Army band, Marine Corps band, you know, Air, Air Force band, whatever, uh, you name it. A big part of that is having a legit formal education in music. They look for that. It's a big part of the process. You have to know however many instruments. You have to be really talented. You have to be able to read music and have that education. So he is out there, a PhD. He is. He has a job. He's a teacher. And then he's a sergeant in the National Guard. He's not an E7, an E8. He's not an O4, an O5. He's an E5. He goes out there every day as an E5 in the National Guard, citizen soldier, and he goes out there wherever they need him, wherever he gets deployed to. So right now he's out in, in D.C., you know, with that at the Capitol, the National Guard activated in the Capitol, and he's doing his job as an E5 in the Army, which is hard. He, that's, he's stroking. That's hard. That's grunt work. You're still an E5, okay? You're out there putting in work. That is the, the humble servant leadership. That is the selfless, selfless service the sacrifice of so many veterans, especially we've learned so we've leaned, I'm sorry, we've leaned so hard as a country, as a military on the National Guard and reserve component of the military since 2001. So many National Guard has been deployed to Afghanistan, Iraq, you, you know, other humanitarian missions around the world. Not only that, but responding to every national crisis, the National Guard gets activated to go to hurricanes, earthquakes, uh, her, uh, typhoons, you know, you know, all the different, you know, weather phenomenon, I guess, um, all these different things. And the national guard always responds to this. And I don't know if you guys have remember, remember uh, ever being in a movie theater back when that was possible. And you're waiting for them, by the way, I'm a movie fanatic. I, movie theaters like churches to me, like it's just a peaceful place to me. And I miss movie theaters big time. And I can't wait to go back to a movie theater. But you're in the movie theater and those commercials are playing before the previews start, okay? And they have the National Guard commercial and it shows them doing their thing. And it's like very emotional. I always find it to be very emotional. I have a ton of respect for the National Guard. The National Guard are people who go out there to defend our homes, right? To defend our hometowns. They, In addition to that, they get deployed overseas. And since the post 9-11 war on terror, the military has leaned on the National Guard so hard, so many deployments after deployments after deployments. And now, even with like this crazy thing of being deployed to the Capitol, there he goes. And what does he do? He makes the time to teach his students via the internet, sitting in the back of a Humvee. This is just a beautiful, beautiful story, right? Beautiful story. So shout out to Jacob Koha and the National Guard and uh, big props to them. So that's, that's that story. I hope you guys enjoyed it. Um, the chat's going crazy right now. Scotty's in the chat. Uh, Justin says music definitely helps on deployment and gets you pumped for the next eight to 10 hours of flight. Yeah. Hey, Justin, uh, I remember, um, when we were deployed, we used to rock, uh, to some stomp the yard soundtrack. I don't know if you remember that Scotty says, uh, hello to everybody. 
Um, I still say E5 is the best. E5 is a beautiful rank to be. E5 and E7 are probably the best ranks. Um, Scotty says, just living that dad life. Uh, hope the fam is good. Yep. Everyone's happy, fat and happy over at Scotty's. Okay, cool. So the chat's going good. I hope you guys are having a good time chatting with each other. I think that that's great. That's a beautiful thing. I won't bore you by just reading what you guys are already talking about. I'll probably get to the next story here. So this is a cool story. You know, I'm so, I'm so lucky. I'm so lucky. I've been able to deploy to Iraq. I've been able to deploy to Afghanistan. I've known many great interpreters and I've talked about this on the show. It keeps me up at night. I lose sleep thinking about interpreters people who worked for Americans, with Americans in Iraq and Afghanistan who wanted to come to the United States and become citizens, become Americans, and get their family out of there. And I know they never did, right? And I, I know so many of them never did. Many of them faced persecution in their countries from the enemy. As America leaves Iraq and Afghanistan, which by the way, Afghanistan met its goal of withdrawing down to 2,500 troops this week announced by the Pentagon. And I know so many of these interpreters are never going to see outside of, uh, outside of Iraq and Afghanistan. And that really, um, is a bummer to me. And, and I, and I really get, I really get sad by that. I'm sad by that. Um, this is a story on the other hand of the opposite happening. This is somebody, a story of somebody getting out. Okay. Somebody getting out of Iraq. So I want to, I want to share this because this is a cool one. Iraqi translator becomes U.S. Airman. In 2003, Airman First Class Saeed Shnawa, again, for everyone who tunes in to watch me read names, here we go. Um, Airman First Class Saeed Shnawa was not Airman First Class Saeed Shnawa. He was 21-year-old Iraqi student. In 2003, Airman First Class Shnawa was a 21-year-old Iraqi student of technology at a university in Baghdad. That's when American coalition forces arrived to overthrow the Iraqi government, turning Baghdad a war zone. Like many young men and women in Baghdad, Shnawa fled the city bound for western Iraq where his parents lived at the time. His life was upturned, his future uncertain. I fled to west Iraq where my parents lived around that time, he said. Many villages, including that area, had been deprived of necessities by the regime. That's where we first met. Shnawa said Saddam Hussein's propaganda convinced much of the country that America was evil. But those notions were soon tested when he came face to face with American service members. The first meeting happened when he noticed a crowd of people surrounding an American convoy. Curious, Shnawa approached the crowd and discovered the troops were having great difficulty communicating with the villagers. Where are the women and children in need? He heard the uniformed troops ask in a barely intelligible attempt at local dialect. Because he attended college in the capital, Shnawa seemed to understand the communication better than the gathered Iraqis. I jumped in to help the elders, but was quickly kicked out of the crowd, he said. But I was persistent, and instead of going to the elders again, I went directly to the Americans. When I broke through the crowd, I said, I can take you to the women and children in need of supplies. I know where they are. By the way, if you guys get a chance to check out the book, uh, Johnny Walker, codename Johnny Walker, it seems like there is a trend of the, the, more, the more, I don't want to use the word aggressive, but the more tenacity with which the Iraqi and Afghanis persisted helping Americans with the further, you know, in front of the line they got as far as getting a job. They had to like go meet somebody directly, like go up to that truck, go offer to help. Don't try to go through the process of filling out the paperwork, um, go into the employment office and going through the army's human resources department for that kind of stuff. It was all about the people who really showed that they wanted to be there by going and, you know, just saying, Hey, I'm here. I'm going to help you. That seemed to be a good tech technique for them. The troops immediately located Shinawa and 
loaded Chinaw into their Humvee and he directed them where to go. After delivering the supplies, the commander told me the location of their base in case I wanted to help again. At that point, I was still very hesitant to join them on a regular basis. After accompanying them again to deliver aid to some families in need, though, I was convinced of their sincere motives to help my people. All of my preconceived notions about the Americans went out the window and the rest was history. There's so much, you know, propaganda spread. It's that psyops. It's the psyops of the other side where they go in and say, the Americans are here to kill us. The Americans are here to, you know, take over our country. They're invaders. And then when people go up and actually met Americans and, you know, got some Skittles from them and stuff, they realized that that wasn't necessarily the case. And maybe um, the Americans were there actually to help. It was only those early interactions right around the time the coalition was overthrowing the Hussein regime that put him on a long winding path that ended with Chinois becoming a U.S. Air Force airman. Now, 16 years later, this is so cool. Now, 16 years later, he's an 811th Operation Sports Squadron Aircrew Flight Equipment Technician. So that's an easy job to write. Stationed here at JBA, which is a joint base, um, you, you know, joint base. That's that joint base life. So uh, JBA, where am I? Lost my place in the article. So um, I'm going to find it. So... From then on, Shinawa translated for the Americans frequently at various locations. They not only provided supplies and essential aid, but also removed rockets left by the regime from abandoned schools and medical clinics. I witnessed time and time again the good deeds of the, Ameri of the United States and coalition forces in the Sunni and Shia regions of Iraq. Side by side, coalition troops trained new Iraqi forces, acquired contracts to rebuild schools and hospitals, and empowered citizens and resources. Shinawa worked with both the Marine Corps and the Army, receiving letters of recognition and commemorative coins as co tokens of gratitude from every unit rotation. Those uh, coins are great. Those challenge coins are great. Shinawa said he loved the work he was doing, and he developed an admiration for the different branches of service. Because of them, he felt like he was able to help impact the nation on a larger scale. But the great heroes of the U.S. forces did not get to see what I saw, he said. While they were trading off four... For year-long deployments, I was observing, and I observed many great accomplishments. From 2003 to 2008, Chinois said he watched as the nation grew and improved thanks to the military efforts, but even in all his pride, he found himself disappointed. He said he wished the troops who did the work could witness his long-term positive impact. To make matters worse, he said, news outlets across the world had turned, into the U turned on the U.S. and coalition forces. From his vantage point, the media coverage was focused too much on bullets and bombs and not enough on the progress. He says at least 1% of the operations he observed were met with violence. Or less than 1%. He said less than 1% of the operations he observed were met with violence. I wonder if the Americans would back that up. Now, <clears throat> now in November 2009, Chinois locked his cell phone and disappeared longer than ever before from his family. That was the worst seven months of his life, he says, while he was hiding. Eventually, uh, let me skip down some of this stuff here. So they kind of tell the story of um, how he ended up... Um, knowing he had to flee Iraq. And he says, I knew if I stayed in Iraq, my family and I would not survive. It was in 2011 when Anam finally got the whole story. He called me from America and finally told me everything she said. Anam said she spent much of the next two years being interviewed at the U.S. Embassy in Iraq. Whenever they could schedule it, they spoke on the phone. It was hard and just so much better than before. I finally had assurance that he was alive. In January of 2013, after more than two years apart, Anam was finally reunited with her husband, so that's his wife. The, uh, the disappearances, the hiding, the fear, it was over. When I arrived here, I felt a sense of peace. We started a better life together. He still had a dream to fulfill, though, Shinawa. I hold a tremendous amount of honor towards those troops in Iraq. It's something I will never be able to describe. I used to wonder, will I ever get the chance to do their job in their uniform before I wrote it off as an impossible dream? Well, in 2017, Saeed came home with citizenship papers in hand and an idea his wife did not expect to hear. After all the dangerous things he had done, he still wanted to join the military. Of course, I, I said, absolutely not, his wife said. 
And I didn't blame her, Shinoa said. No one in the world would blame her because of the torture I put her through. After they spent time researching the different service branches, and Nam said they started to warm up to the idea. I realized it was different than the service in Iraq. Together, we made the decision he would enlist in the Air Force. This time, the separation had an entirely different meaning. When Saeed left for basic military training, he reminded me of all the bad things that happened to us and our country. He said, good people here in America saved our lives. I want to serve this country because of the heroes, because of those heroes, and they all sacrificed for us. What a great story. What a great story of an interpreter working hard in Iraq with Americans, becomes a target, becomes threatened, has to go into hiding, comes to America, eventually gets his wife to America, and he joins the Air Force. Now, the only thing I'll say is, I wonder if after he went to Air Force boot camp, he was like, I joined the weakest branch. I joined, these people are babies. What a bunch of babies. I, I came from Iraq. I was born in Iraq. I went to war alongside Americans, helping them, you know, stabilize our region as best they could during the time that he was there. He was up against Al-Qaeda in Iraq, Saddam Hussein's loyalists, the Iraqi army. And he goes and goes to Air Force boot camp and they're like, the food's not up to quality par. I'm going to need an additional $800 a month. It's like, what? He's probably like, what? Are you kidding me? He was probably his division leader in boot camp. I bet he uh, had had some, a bit of a adjustment uh, to have to do to deal with um, the luxury of the Air Force. I mean, what a life he has now. Just think, going from living in Iraq, in war-torn Iraq, to being just enlisted in the Air Force? That's a baller update right there. He's got, he's balling out of control. He's probably having a good old time. So good for him. I am, I am very, very proud of that story, and I'm happy for him. And, uh, and I'm happy for all the interpreters and people who helped and served alongside Americans overseas in conflicts who were able to get a better life. And my heart goes out to all those who weren't. I think about it all the time, um, especially my boy Sammy in Afghanistan, who, uh, you know, we were friends on Facebook, and he, uh, he wanted to come to America, big hip-hop fan, and uh, he ran a shop out in Afghanistan. And wherever he is today, I hope he's doing well. I'm pretty sure he's still over in uh, Afghanistan. But I hope he's doing well. Um, you know, honestly, I can't really think too much about it right now. So I'm going to move on to this next story. And I'll tell you, there's this new thing I'm, I'm thinking about doing. It's inspired by this story we're about to get to today. It's going to be the third individual that we talk about. But stripes.com has obituaries of veterans. And when I saw this today, I wanted to add in this story because I thought it was really, really cool. Um, these three stories of, not that it's cool that this is an obituary, but I think it's cool to honor the service of veterans who have passed away, especially considering that the three we're about to talk about are stories that just, I think are important to be told, um, each for their own individual reasons. So let's get to it. And I'll talk about why I think this is so important to do. So World War II veteran Jack Snyder dies, enlisted at 16, was a Navy corpsman in multiple invasions. A World War II veteran is being remembered for his service to his country and his lifetime commitment to his community. Jack Snyder, who enlisted in the Navy when he was 16 years old. 16 years old, when people were lying about their age to go enlist and serve in World War II. Wow. Jack Snyder, who enlisted uh, in the Navy when he was 16, died December 24th, Christmas Eve, unfortunately, in Waterford and Fairfield. He was 94 in Ohio. Snyder's father signed for him to enlist in the Navy at the height of World War II, according to his daughter, Jennifer Barlow. He Imagine being a parent and signing off on your teenage son to go into World War II. Uh, that's, that's insane. 
He participated as a corpsman in multiple invasions in Europe, Africa, and the Pacific until 1946, and then served as a first lieutenant in the Air Force from 1957 to 63. After the war, he received his degree from the University of Cincinnati and spent his career teaching physical education and serving as an administrator in the Oak Hills and Cincinnati public school districts. He retired and then served as a long-term substitute teacher and administrator. So after his military service, where he enlisted and served in multiple invasions as a corpsman in World War II, he goes on to be a, you know, contributing member of his community, working as an educator, including with the Boy Scouts. He was, uh, uh, when he moved to Fairfield eight years, uh, so Snyder was in the Boy Scouts and served on the park committee in Green Troop. He helped develop parks there and was instrumental in teaching students about veterans and veterans and Memorial Days, his daughter said. His father, uh, her father, Sabarlo, 58, the youngest of his three children, says he his, that her father loved to meet people and tell jokes. He was an incredible man and role model. And he passed away on uh, Christmas Eve, so that's unfortunate. Next, we have Clayton Petre, the World War II. There we go again. Clayton Peter Petre. World War, I hope I'm getting it close. I hope one of my attempts was close. World War II veteran, Marine Trailblazer, Congressional Gold Medal recipient, dies at 96 years old. A Congressional Gold Medal recipient for his service in World War II, Clayton Petre was a trailblazer in the U.S. Marines, a master storyteller, and a staunch advocate for education. Petre died January 1st at Harborview Medical Center of Complications from a Heart Condition. He was 96. Born June 30th, 1924, Petre was born and raised on a farm in Louisiana, one of seven children, where he spoke Creole French along with English. Interesting. He left school in the ninth grade because there was a lack of further education opportunities in his area. In 1943, he was one of the first black men to join the U.S. Marines and trained at the segregated Camp Montford Point in North Carolina. During his service in World War II, Petre was stationed in Saipan in northern Mariana Islands and later fought in the Battle of Okinawa, where I am right now in Japan. He oversaw the evacuation of the Japanese army in China before he was honorably discharged in 1946. Unbelievable. Mr. Petre was quite a trailblazer. Michael Johnson, Western Region Vice President of the Montford Point Marine Association, said there were no African-Americans in the Marine Corps until 1942. So that was the Marine Corps' experiment to see if African-Americans would be able to serve in the capacity of the Marines, the same as the Tuskegee Airmen did during World War II. Can you believe that people had to live through a time like that? Like, it seems so foreign to us now that this was the normal standard, that people had serious conversations. Ken, do you think black people could be Marines? I don't know. We should do some experiments. I mean, I don't know. It, nobody could possibly predict that that's possible. So I guess we have to do some test runs and send them into the most dangerous possible jobs, segregated with less equipment and worse treatment, and just see how they do, I guess. I can't believe, you know, unbelievable. Petre and his fellow Marines helped initiate the civil rights movement throughout their efforts to integrate the U.S. Armed Forces, which was successful in 1949. So only in 1949 did the armed forces integrate. Shortly after he completed his service, Petre followed his older brothers to Seattle, com completed high school, finally, at Seattle. <clears throat> Excuse me. At Seattle's Broadway Edison Technical School while he worked at, for fought at Fort Lawton in the Magnolia neighborhood. In 1957, a family friend introduced him to his wife, Gloria. She was a French professor during her visit from Oklahoma. They bonded over their love of the French language. The Petres had three sons, Clayton Jr., Michael, and Paul, and created a home in the Mount Baker neighborhood for seven decades. Petre attended Seattle University, received a bachelor's degree in accounting while selling real estate and working for the U.S. Postal Service. Wow, great. Um, then he worked until he retired. He was an active member of the Kappa Alpha Psi Seattle alumni chapter since 1949. Um and it goes on to list uh, some additional accomplishments of his. He was a father, masterful storyteller, philosophical, cool-headed, and ethical, his three sons said. During their daily phone calls, Clayton Jr. 
said his father discussed the progression of the civil rights movement and how it related to the current push for racial justice. He was always forward looking and had an optimistic perspective about how we will prevail. We will move on. We will grow. This guy's an American hero. He had a vision and a great mind and he never stopped until the day he passed away telling everybody about how they can achieve, about what they can achieve if they put their minds to it. In 2015, the Seattle Seahawks selected Petre to raise the 12th man flag at CenturyLink Field in honor of his congressional gold medal. Petre is survived by his three sons, seven grandchildren, and two great-grandchildren. His wife, Gloria, died last year, unfortunately. A virtual funeral will be held next month, followed by an outdoor celebration planned for September 4th. Donations can be made to the Seattle chapter of the United Negro College Fund. Um, amazing. So, uh, so here's a true American hero, and uh, I'm glad we could bring some attention to him and his life story. And then lastly, the reason that we started this special in the first place was this article that came across my uh, inbox of the oldest living, the who, the woman who was the oldest living Marine passed away at 107 years old. <clears throat> Dorothy Cole, the oldest living Marine, dies at 107. Dorothy Dot Cole, the oldest living Marine, has died. She was 107 years old. Her daughter, Beth Klutz confirmed Friday that Cole died of a heart attack on January 7th. Here are some images of her at different points in her life, including in the Marine Corps, her with some Marines, and uh, her later in life. The Marine Corps recognized Cole as its oldest veteran in September. Cole was 29 years old when she enlisted in the Marines in 1943. Two years earlier, she had tried to join the Navy, but at 4 feet 11 inches, she did not meet their height requirement. Wow. 4 foot 11. But she still wanted to serve. She was driven. Nothing was going to stop her. Everyone was out there doing something. There were women helping the Red Cross or even in churches. They were knitting things. So I decided I wanted to do something and I would go into the Marine Corps. In July 1942, President Franklin D. Roosevelt signed the Marine Corps Women's Reserve into law, giving women the chance to fill positions left open by men headed to combat. The Corps delayed formation of the branch until 1943 and Cole enlisted five months later, becoming one of the branch's earliest volunteers. She tried to pursue, persuade the Marines to let her be a pilot like Amelia Earhart. But despite 200 hours flying a Piper Cub and completing six weeks of boot camp, she wound up behind a typewriter instead of an airplane. She achieved the rank of sergeant before leaving the service in 1945. So what they're saying is they pushed women into jobs that were non-combat so they could push those men who were in those non-combat jobs forward deployed into you know Europe, Africa, the Pacific. Um, women were permanently allowed to serve in the Marines in 1948. Again, the fight for civil rights is so incredible and that generation who lived through it is getting older and older and so much of that is embedded into the military service as well which all these stories obviously you know discuss in what some capacity that uh i think it's really great that we can cover them and i'd like to keep doing this if you guys are interested in these types of stories and would like to know more i'll keep covering this kind of stuff as these cross my desk um let me know in the comments cole's husband wiley served in the navy she moved to san francisco to be with him after the war they were married and had their only child, Klutz. I mean, come on. Klutz? Imagine being named Klutz, and then, like, you trip. Unbelievable. Klutz moved from California to North Carolina in 1976, and Cole followed her to the area in 1979. She is survived by her daughter, two granddaughters, and six great-grandchildren. Wow, her great-grandma. Instead of flowers, she asked donations to be made to the Covenant Presbyterian Church, where she was a member for 40 years, or to the Marine Corps League Cabarrus Detachment. I'll have to look up what that is. But amazing, you know, after all of that, she, she in her last wishes, hopes that, you know, if people want to donate, they choose to do so either to her church or to the Marine Corps. It just goes to show you how that service stays with you for your entire life. Service stays with you your entire life. Um, 
So for those who watch the show who are thinking about joining the military, who haven't done it yet, I encourage you to think about this. Think about the fact that people into their very, very, very late life um, value their time spent in the military. And I and part of me believes that as you get older, your val- the way you value your military service increases. It becomes more and more of a big part of your life as you get older. So I hope that while you were in, you got to do a lot of cool stuff because when you get older, I feel like you're going to want to rebond with that veteran network. People are going to want to talk to you about your service. What was it like to serve during the war on terror, all this stuff. Um, so, so enjoy, enjoy it while you can enjoy it while you're in. Um, it seems like, you know, we should learn from our elders. And if I've learned one thing, it's that I'm going to be talking about my military service for the rest of my life. And I think the rest of us will too. Uh, so just, so Scotty says, I bumped into one of our Terps at the mall before COVID. It was crazy to see him. Wow, that's awesome, Scotty. Justin says, but their mandatory air conditioning and TCO in the, in the talks was nice for mission planning. Always loved them for that. Yeah, the Air Force had it good. So that's about the Air Force, how good the Air Force has it. Um, and everyone seems to like these stories. Okay, so I'll keep them coming. Um, the, we have one more story today uh, to wrap up today. And it is uh, the Navy's naming a new ship. And uh, they're naming it after a Korean War hero. And I want to share this story because after I read this, I was like, we have, we got to talk about this one. This one's too good. This one's too good to, uh, to pass up. So this Korean war medal of honor recipient is getting a ship named after him. One of the hardest things about the medal of honor is that you're really not allowed to forget about it. He says the Navy announced on Friday that it would name an upcoming sports ship after private first class, Robert Simonek, a Marine who was awarded the medal of honor after jumping on a grenade to save his fellow Marines in Korea 69 years ago and survived to tell the tale. The ship, a massive Lewis B. Puller-class expeditionary mobile base that weighs 100,000 tons when fully loaded, is the first to be named after Simonek, who was just another 22-year-old infantry grunt when he woke up on the morning of August 17, 1952. I'd been out all night, and they had to use me again without any sleep, the former rifleman and radioman recalled that about that morning uh, for an interview with the Veterans History Project. Simonek was assigned to Company F, 2nd Battalion, 5th Marine Regiment, 1st Marine Division, again, complex structure there, when he was selected to go on a morning patrol to an area called Outpost Irene, just north of Seoul, according to the 2020 DoD article written about him. The exhausted Simonic was unhappy about the patrol, but Irene was a relatively peaceful area, so he looked forward to a quiet morning. It took, I took an old Reader's Digest and a can of precious beer in my big pack pocket and thought I was really going to have a relaxing situation, he said. It didn't turn out that way. It always seems that, right? It's like, it was supposed to be an easy day. It was almost the end of our deployment. We thought everything was going to be good. That's when this kind of stuff always happens. <clears throat> Instead, Simonek and his squad ran into an ambush as they headed uphill. Mortars and gunfire from Chinese troops, because if you don't know, the Chinese was supporting North Korea in the Korean War. Mortars and gunfire from Chinese troops exploded around them. The machine gunner walking behind Simonek was killed and the squad split up. Some ran for cover at the base of the hill while Simonek and the five other Marines in front of him jumped into a four-foot deep trench near the top of the hill. One of them was shot through the chest, but things were going to get even worse. Simonek soon saw two Chinese officers talking nearby. The Marines shot them both, but other Chinese troops threw grenades back in response. Just, they're in close combat, taking machine gun fire, People are dying around them. They're in a trench. This is as horrible as war gets, okay? This is as bad as war gets. This is the trench warfare that people were fighting in World War I, World War II, Korea. Unthinkable. This is like the type of stuff that we've never faced in Iraq and Afghanistan. This kind of close combat, peer-to-peer force, 
massive units fighting each other. I, you know, I, I can't even, I can't even imagine it. I can't even imagine it. Um, Simonek soon saw two Chinese officers talking to Biden. Marine shot them both, but other Chinese troops threw grenades back in response. Simonek took shrapnel to his feet from one grenade, but he continued to try to draw Chinese fire away from the other Marines by popping up further down the trench. Eventually, however, two grenades came sailing into the trench. Simonek kicked one away, but he didn't think there was enough time to kick the, uh, away the second. Instead, he threw himself onto the grenade to absorb its blast and save his friends. It was training, he says. It wasn't any mental decision on my part at all. It was an automatic thing pushed by somebody. Um, it, you know, I don't know. I don't know what I think about that. Like, you still, have, you still have to do it, you know? He could have dove away from the grenade. When, you, when somebody dives onto a grenade, it's like saying they're accepting imminent death in the hopes that it'll save the people around them. And this is after he's already wounded, he's already been fighting, killed two Chinese officers, kicked away one grenade, realizes there's another one. So, so he, he had the time to kick away a grenade, realize there was another one. He's got some situational awareness. This was a conscious decision, I think. I mean, I don't want to put, I don't want to speak for him. Obviously, he says it wasn't. But to have the wherewithal to think, okay, there are two, even though this all happens in a split second, there are two grenades here. I've moved one. There's not enough time to move the other. What can I do? I can jump on it. And that's what he does. Somehow, Simonik managed to cover the grenade with the right part of my body that didn't hurt me that much, he said. Still, he'd taken a lot of shrapnel to his right hip and right lower leg, and he was in immense pain. I can imagine. But that did not stop him from fighting. He and the other Marines were pinned down by an enemy bunker slightly below them. So Simonek got on the radio and directed a nearby tank to fire on the bunker. The tank got hit, but the struggle was not over. Simonek's fellow Marines thought it was now safe to carry him down the hill. But the tank accidentally fired on them, wounding two Marines as it tried to kill some Chinese troops. The Marines could still move, but they could no longer carry Simonek, so he told them he would make his own way down the hill. The idea that they could not carry me, it was no doubt the best thing for them to get going. He recalled, I certainly agreed with them. Unbelievable. Now on his own, the Marine crawled back down the hill on his hands and knees until another squad found him and put him on an outbound helicopter. Nearly 70 years later, Simonek still remembers that helicopter ride. He says, I enjoyed that helicopter ride so much, I just couldn't get over how beautiful it was. But then I'd had the shot in the arm, and that sort of gave me a little extra sense of beauty. He's talking about some morphine, probably. Simonek was treated for severe nerve damage in his right leg aboard the USS Haven in Japan. From there, he was flown to Great Lakes, Illinois, where it took nearly a year for him to recover. The Marine was put on disability retired list in March 1953 and was discharged with a brace for walking. Seven months later, on October 27, 1953, President Eisenhower presented him with the Medal of Honor at a White House ceremony. Oddly enough, Simonek said Eisenhower was more interested in his German-speaking grandmother than in him. My grandmother, who was from Germany, had a very strong accent, and the President Eisenhower was more impressed with listening to her talk than he was with me. He just enjoyed talking with her, listening to her accent. Simonek's story is one of bravery, but in some ways never ended. One of the hardest things about the medal is that you're really never allowed to forget it, he said. People will, in a good, meaningful way of trying to compliment you, bring about some memories that maybe you'd like to get rid of. They do say, you know, I've heard Medal of Honor winners, awardees say, it is a, it is a burden. Not an award, it's a burden. Because they're made to relive the day of getting, of what happened, which is always horrible, again and again and again and again. 
After leaving the Marines, Simonick married, had a daughter, graduated from Michigan State University, and worked in business before retiring in 1992. The Detroit native lives in Farmington Hills, Michigan, with his wife, Nancy. He'll turn 91 this year. I just want to say really quick, imagine this guy, you know, if you see him on the screen right now without the Medal of Honor, then you find out you've been working with him in business for 20 years, and he's like, oh, yeah, I got the Medal of Honor in Korea. You know, when you see when you see an, an, an older person maybe wearing a, a Vietnam veteran hat, a World War II veteran hat, a Korean War veteran hat, remember that once they were a, a certified badass mofo, like a warrior, a warfighter, you know? Um, in, in a way that our generation doesn't totally understand. You know, the casualties of Korea, World War II, Vietnam, you know, and going back, far outnumbered the war on terror. And I'm not tr- taking anything away from anybody here. I'm just saying the the combat that they saw was different and more savage and more brutal than what we ever saw in Iraq and Afghanistan. And that was savage and brutal and horrible. And it's hard to, um, you know, it's hard to picture because we see it in black and white. We see it portrayed in film and TV and we see it in old photos. And it's just hard to... It's just, it's just hard to get in that mindset that these guys were fighting trench warfare up close, it, you know, for, for in some cases, years at a time. And, and I think it's just important to remember that. So this ship is going to be named after him, is the second to last expeditionary mobile base that the Navy plans to procure as part of the Lewis B. Puller, named after the famous Chesty Puller of the Marine Corps class of ships. The USS... Robert E. Simonek will have a flexible modular design capable of supporting any mission you like. As the commander of the USS Lewis B. Puller described his ship to Navy Times in 2017, those missions include launching helicopters, small boats, unmanned surface vehicles, special operations, or mine countermeasures operations, carrying troops, supplies, or performing maintenance. It's a force enabler, Brigadier General Francis Donovan says. It complements and enhances our capability. The ship class is an ideal one for Simonek, who saw his actions in the Korean War as a means of helping his unit accomplish their mission. Any sacrifices we really made for were for each other, he said. We never thought about it as self-sacrifice so much as necessity to do your job so the group could succeed. It was our duty. That's what, that's what all the great heroes say, right? They're just doing their duty, but it's more than that. Um, Carlos says, it was gruesome in comparison. In tunnels, hand-to-hand, we were spoiled compared to them, Scotty says. Yeah, it's really true. It's really true. So I hope you guys enjoyed that story. That's the last one of today. Only hit I'm going to add to that one uh, before I get going is um, when you're stationed on a ship, whoever that ship's named after, you tend to know a lot about. There's usually a, a an area dedicated to that person or that event, and the, the the ship's crew usually will spend a lot of time, you know, doing training and talking about who the ship's named after, and they'll do you know, safety stand downs about it. And they're encouraged to represent and honor and continue to share the story of the person that the ship's named after. So because that ship bears the name of Robert Simonek, he will forever live in the history of the United States Navy, um, Navy Marine Corps team as a, as a hero, as a legend, as a medal of honor recipient. And, um, and I think that's incredible. And the people who serve on that ship over the next, you know, 20, 30, 40 years, however long the ship's in service will always remember the name and share the story. And I think that's, you know, a great part of this whole thing. So with that, I want to thank you guys for tuning in today. I hope you're having a great week. Um, Carlos says the USS Rushmore. Nice. Scotty says, uh, can you imagine fixing bayonets? I cannot, (laughs) uh, you know, getting the order to, you know, put, put your bayonets on because you're about to run out of ammunition. and It's about to go, you know, hand to hand. It's, it's really like 
I don't think you can imagine if you haven't been there in that situation, which uh, <clears throat> hasn't happened probably since Vietnam. Um, to some extent, you know, there's been hand-to-hand combat, there's been close quarters combat, but the idea of an army force facing another army force and uh, preparing for the inevitable moment where you come hand-to-hand, I probably has not happened since Vietnam. So anyway, thank you guys. We'll be back tomorrow early. Our show tomorrow is early. Check all our social medias, Discord, uh, Facebook, Instagram for the schedule this week. Tomorrow's the only day that we're changing the schedule. I'm sorry, wait, tomorrow, no episode. Tomorrow, no episode. Um, wait, 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 wait. Tomorrow, early episode. Tomorrow, early episode. We are having a show tomorrow. I apologize. I got to get the calendar straight myself. Tomorrow, early episode, but there will be an episode. I am. I want to thank you guys for tuning in. Links in the description down below for how you can support the channel. Patreon is the best way. Uh, if you become an elite patron in your second month, you get a free t-shirt. Um, or just invite people to come watch the show. Just invite people to come watch the show, join the chat, and have a good time. Um, with that, I uh, I look forward to talking to you guys tomorrow. Thank you for tuning into this episode today. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I am out for now.